Hey, J. Crew, this is Molly A. with an important Purim public service announcement. Please remember to brush the insides of your hamantashen with egg wash before folding them into shape and baking. Otherwise, they might explode, and Heyman wins. Enjoy the show. This is Unorthodox, the world's leading Jewish podcast. I'm Stephanie Butnick, joined by my co-host, Tablet Senior Writer Liel Leibovitz. Who is hungry. And tablet editor-at-large, who needs no introduction, Mark Oppenheimer. Feeling at-large today. Feeling large. I'm and, feeling and at-large calling you at-large. So at-large. Taking large. control of this episode. Yep. The Podfather is in. So, Tablet's book, The 100 Most Jewish Foods, a highly debatable list, is finally here. Yeah. And, and to celebrate, we have a very special episode all about Jewish food. The good, the bad, the beige. <laughs> You'll be hearing interviews with people involved in making the book. You'll also hear from contributors to the book, like Jill Kargman, Gil Hovav, Amanda Hesser and Meryl Stubbs of Food 52, Shalom Oslander, and more, who will be actually reading their entries from the book. We'll also be talking with the folks behind the Jewish Food Society, hearing from a doctor who wrote a book about the healing powers of baking challah, and we'll chat with a listener who's brewing kosher beer in Portland. But before we get to all of that, I'm kind of hungry just just like <laughs> talking about this stuff. I had my Starbucks croissant, so uh, I'm you know, just it, perpetually hungry. It, so in keeping I, with I can, the I can relate the highbrow tone of the show, I should say by the way, having had nothing to do with the making of this book, this is a tablet project that nobody asked me to be involved in. Having just observed over the past year or more, the hundred most Jewish foods first exist as a as a gorgeous interactive website and now as a book that at first in you know in galleys as an advanced copy and now as a bound beautiful thing that's on sale this week right um it's extraordinary and i i i speak just in amazement at what you and alana and just my colleagues in in the writing world have done with this book i think it's a a, a beautiful and and literate work of art i feel like last week we covered furniture in the oppenheimer <clears throat> right. household i want food now so look what uh, you guys eat so growing up, I will say that I am uniquely positioned to not have a role in this book, right? And a lot – what makes this book so wonderful is that it's not about, you know, fine cooking, folk cooking, this cooking, that. It's about all kinds of cooking but really their emotional role in in a Jewish life or in Jewish heritage. Like what do – what makes foods most Jewish, right? Um I grew up in a household that was, you know, religiously secular, but definite strong Jewish identity. My father had this sort of classical reform German identity. My my mother's parents had been sort of, you know, Litvak communist types, but Jewy, Jewy, Jewy in, in lots of ways through. Uh, we did some holidays. We had a lot of family lore. None of it touched on food. There was no recipe that anyone said, ah, that – I mean, my mother made a good fried matzah. I, le I learned at the age of 27. Ooh, Some people called it matzah brai. I had never heard that <laughs> term until I was out of college. It was called fried matzah. Fried matzah the, is like challah bread. Yeah. And, you know, she did that well and her mother had we, done we that. We call it Kentucky fried matzah but, back in our house. You know, my mother – I mean, I suppose my grandmother did once in a blue moon. Like brisket was among 20 dishes she made, but the others were like fried chicken and steak and spaghetti and macaroni and cheese. It was a kind of American palate. Growing up, we had seven meals in rotation. One was friendlies. The other was dominoes. And then, you know, one night there was like a tuna fish and then another night there might be a, a pot roast. But it was very like American. There was nothing ethnic. But there's another thing to say about this, which is that my mother, whom I adore and who influenced me greatly, strong second wave feminist. She wouldn't have said second wave. She wasn't into those titles. Like she was a product of the women's movement. She got out of college in 1966 um, you know what was a friend of feminists? Fucking dominoes. Like I come out of feminist people who my mother and her friends who did not slave away in the kitchen. They didn't think there was anything progressive about using this organic, this or that. They basically wanted not to cook. So that said, I love eating well. I like food. Um, I'm What's not against it. What's your favorite Jewish it. food? My favorite Jewish food is, is matzah brai. 
because I was probably because that matzo. has a fried matzah has a place in my heart. Uh, and when I ate meat, I loved brisket. I loved corned beef. I love appetizer. I love smoked fish. But that said, like, it doesn't speak to me the way other, quote, arts do. So, Liel, what's your what's your Jewish food? You I mean, grew just up in Israel. Just look Every at food like, is what? a Jewish food. Every food is my Jewish food. Is there a Jewish food that I don't love? I mean, it's Everything. so interesting because a lot of the foods in the book are, you know, Israeli or, or foods that are eaten in Israel. Um, and, like, would you consider, like, growing up eating hummus, hummus, hummus. like a Jewish? I mean, I'm just so curious the way Israeli foods function in the larger, larger conception of Jewish foods. Like, you, were you growing up eating, like, chicken soup? I grew up eating everything. <laughs> I can't stress this enough. Like, the things that we ate in my household would repulse you. Like, every Friday, we would buy, like, six challahs. One was for Shabbos, and the other is we would just, or just to eat with your hands. No, no, no. Just take the inside. You would excavate the challahs. The whole thing. So my friend Derek and I, when oh, we used to great. do play Atari, he liked having a challah to excavate. <laughs> no, no, but Th- that is that kind was of sound and normal. What we did, we excavated the whole thing, made it into one giant ball, dipped it. Sat on it. In <laughs> Sour cream Ew. and shoved it into my mouth. That is disgusting. Not a, sour cream. Your mouth you're shoving it into. Fundamentally um, un-Jewish. So, so you know, th- th- I have so many obsessions with so many of the of the foods in in that book. Right, the sour cream being so un-Jewish was what made it cool, right? Because like, yeah, so take the challah, yeah. but then we're going to desecrate it. Yeah, <laughs> Sabbath it's punk rock and, and a touch of you know whiteness. Um, there are so many foods in in this book that that are amazing, and so many that that play kind of a crucial role. I feel in kind of Israeli cuisine. But the genius thing to us about Israeli cuisine is that all these distinctions that coming here, I realized had this deep political cultural meaning, actually meant nothing in Israel because they were just normal food. They no one food. necessarily thought, oh, this comes from the immigrants from Iran, and this comes from the you know from the people who came from Ethiopia, and this is Russian. It's like it's all. It'll be the most normal thing in the world to sit down, have hummus, and then some herring, and then some ashpalau from you know uh, Bukharian Jews. Like it just made perfect sense because that's kind of how the country looked growing up. It's like it's people from everywhere. And it's still kind of the way the country is, and I kind of love it for It that. also feels like you didn't think of it as Jewish food. You thought of it as just uh, as, food. As food. Mm-hmm. Right. What about you, Stephanie? What was Long Island cuisine? It's interesting because I grew up on Long Island where like everything was Jewish by osmosis in my particular por- you know portion. Obviously, that's not entirely true. I realized there, were, you know, there was like the Catholic girl in my grade and stuff like that. Um, but there was a way in which, and, you know, a lot of my friends were Persian. So I would go to Maxine's house after school and she would have these like trays of Persian rice that her parents just like had in their second fridge after having a party. And we would just like eat it. And it was amazing. Um, I have this very visceral memory that I think a few years after college, I we were all learning to make my grandmother's um, gefilte fish recipe. And this was like the recipe that had come through Auschwitz and, you know, all this thing. And right before that, we I were all it. going to my aunt Step Nancy's one, apartment. Find a fish. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, it's funny. It's written, it's written down on this like old Great. piece of paper, and it's like it's been scanned, and it's you know it was obviously written after Auschwitz, but it says like one of the directions is just keep adding salt until it tastes right. <laughs> like that's like how it was. So we always these are like go, the Lubavitchers always have these stories about how like somebody smuggled out a page of a sitter that was like in several body cavities in Theresen in the blah blah yeah, blah. blah this like, was different because it was a recipe. Family, it was a recipe you could for remember. Fish, right. But you know, 
So we were going to make the recipe at my Aunt Nancy's apartment, and we were all, all the cousins were going to go meet there. Before that, I had to go break up with my college boyfriend. I basically was like, you know, I could do it after, or I could do it before. So I basically break up with this guy and then go to make my grandmother's gefilte fish. And there was something like you put the the carp in in the in the processor and it like a meat grinder and it comes out and then you like mash it with your hands. And there was something like so deeply grounding about this experience. It's bizarre. Like I don't know if the two have anything to do with each other, but I was just like, these are my people. Like meat. Fish bones, that's, you know, just like that's third generation feminism. That's yeah, gefil- well, third, gefilte feminism. Third generation survivor feminism. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was and something. Gefilte feminism is not a thing. We should make it a gefilte thing. feminism. Gefilte I'm feminism. in. But there was something so nice, and then we were all joking that like our blood, our, our sweat, and, t- and my tears went into the thing. But um, it was nice, like on Passover, we ate that gefilte fish you that ate I helped the memory made. of your loser ex boyfriend. It was like a communion wafer. Um, but yeah, that's my weird story about Jewish food. But I think there's a way in which I I so deeply find comfort in food. Like, I really like food. I find it comforting. It just doesn't have any emotional resonance. Like, like to me, there's, there's something... times when I want like a, a hot fudge sundae, but it's not like but this my is aunt why... Bess's hot fudge sundae. But, but this is why no, I, the bagel uh, Jew idea is very real to me because it's like I do feel like I'm connecting through something to something like a filter through Jew. food. Yeah. I'm like a filter feminist Jew. To get this episode started, we are going to welcome. Oh, in. we already got this episode started. Stephanie. Fine, we are started. We are so so far We're in at this underway. point. I want to welcome in Tablet's editor in chief, Alana Newhouse. She's the editor of this collection, and she can shed a little bit of light on what it was like making it. Alana, tell us about Tablet's new book that you edited, "The 100 Most Jewish Foods: A Highly Debatable List." The book was creatively one of the most fun and gratifying and meaningful experiences I've had in the last few years. It started with an idea, which was um, what would the foods be if we were to create a canon of foods the way that we create canons of books um, or movies? Could we look at food the same way as a cultural product that um, Jews have created over millennia? And if we did look at it that way um, and we saw each of these individual products as part of a larger um, collection um, that was it were an inheritance. Um, what would be on the list? Um, and so we started to ask ourselves these questions, and then reach out to other people, um, particularly food people and historians. And the list that we came up with, I think, is actually I, I don't think it's perfect. Um, I think we called it a highly debatable list in part because we never stopped fighting about it. Um, but at some point we had to go to press. So what you see is uh, what we eventually committed to. So I will say this. Rarely did I have more fun at work, and rarely would anyone have hey. more fun at work than working on that book. We have fun uh, every day. We do, but but then there's food. I, I want to I I step away from all this. I, I want to play devil's sous chef for a second and say, okay, great. Devil's we get ganache. It. <laughs> devil's, no, devil's sommelier. Uh, and, and, and say, okay, look, um, there's something, though, going on culturally in which people pay way too much attention to food, right? There's all this kind of foodie culture and people obsess over it and people put it on a pedestal, uh, forgetting that it is at its core something very kind of, you know, elemental. Do you feel it's a fair criticism? Do you feel that by looking at food we're maybe neglecting to look at other kind of cultural things that are more important? Or is food actually kind of the mystery magical path into discussions and thoughts that we actually can't have otherwise, which the, you know, secret Madeleine unlocks. You know, I, I think that like a lot of questions you asked me, the answer is, you know, neither. 
um, or the both. Is, what's wrong um, with you? No, I, I feel like um, my answer to that is, is I do believe that food is a way to talk about um, Jewish identity um, that is that feels both at once safe at a time when a lot of other ways of talking about Jewish identity feel scary or challenging, um, but also deepening. I think it forces you to ask yourself complicated questions about abundance, scarcity, insiderness, outsiderness, um, about the role that women play and played in Jewish life. I think those those questions are all here and they're all in the book. There's no right or wrong way to, to understand food or f- the role that food, food did play or frankly, food did not play a certain role in your life that it may have played in others. For many, many generations of Jews, food was inextricable from Jewish experience. And it it was inextricable from the Jewish story that everything was built on, right? You have it, literally the story of the, the first human drama starts with an apple. Then you have a stew at the heart of Jacob and Esau. Then you have uh, cows that get fat and skinny for Joseph. And then you have matzah, which is literally how Jews create the con- or understand the concept of liberation is around a food. The idea that food could ever be... Um, leached out of one's Jewish experience, not identity, but experience, I think may be a very modern um See, I hear what you're saying, but I would actually, and I think that's true. There's another way in which y'all's experience of food is very American and modern, which is that when it's talked about as as foodie culture, when we when we exalt chefs, for example, that is super contempo American and would have been completely alien to most uh, self-identifying Jews throughout history in a way that it would not be completely alienating or alien to most French people for, say, several centuries. But I think there's it's an American more- glomming. All, it's an American attachment to an exaltation of like the chef or the food magazine or the this or the that that it didn't exist in the Eastern European shtetl or in Yemen. Right. But I would say that actually um, one of the things about this book, which I think is different um, from other collections, is we love our chefs and we um, are so happy to have them as part of the book. Um, In addition to them, though, a lot, in fact, I would say most of the entries are by people with uh, rooting in history. It's a Jewish history book. Um, It's not simply a book about how to make a cool appetizing plate. It's actually a book about how food functioned in Eastern Europe in 1500, how it worked mm-hmm. for conversos. And the idea, like the converso, the Adafina entry, uh, so Adafina was a Sabbath stew that was made by conversos or confessos in the Iberian Peninsula. So people who had been Jewish. but So they were people who had been Jewish and they had Christianized either under duress or voluntarily. Many of them maintained their connection to their Jewishness. And one of the ways that um, the authorities would monitor whether or not Jews were secretly still maintaining their Jewishness um, was through food. And they would find out which people were making uh, this particular stew on Friday night. um, And the giveaway And the thing that people actually had to really uh, be vigilant about was not using uh, the Iberian salt pork that Mm. everyone used, um, which because many people had uh, 
slaves or housekeepers or servants of some kind in their homes, even people who are not um, particularly well off, those servants would monitor whether or not the people who they were working for actually were using salt pork. Which they were supposed to if they were now well, Christian. Well, was just supposed doing to it. if right. they were Christian. To if not they were, use salt pork. It's like absolutely... being a premature anti-fascist. Correct. Right. So to, that story, how do you take food out of that whole community's experience when they used food as their sole tether to something that they felt they lost. So let's hear a little bit from the book. I'm Jill Kargman, and this is Wine. There are so many beautiful brachot, the blessings that make us appreciate the simple gifts we enjoy. So what are my fave Hebrew words to sing? Bore pre hagafen, bitches. I love that my people cherish wine enough to make a special carved chalice for it to toast each life cycle phase. During a circumcision, wine is sipped when the ween is snipped. A bar mitzvah boy drinks as he becomes a man. A bride and groom partake of the cup as they join in holy matrimony and much is consumed on a visit to the in-laws. So many of our holidays include wine, including our weekly Shabbat and, of course, Passover. When I was little, long before I drank, I already loved chanting the ten plagues and making the droplets on my Seder plate. Dom! Blood! That was the first one, and the wine actually looked like it. As the symbolic other nine came down the pike, I remember trying to keep them apart, but eventually my plagues all ran together in a cattle disease locust death of the firstborn red puddle. Later, when the four questions were far in my rearview mirror, I was delighted to actually partake in the guzzling. Speaking of which, call me a highbrow onophile. Lots of people do, but this chick loves Manischewitz. When I drink it, I imagine douchey no-cal sommelier dramatically swirling it in a glass, noting the tremendous nose of flamboyant cherry-kissed red oak. This jammy table wine has top notes of Concord grape and Robitussin. Kind of a lot for Jews to pound four glasses of this stuff, but God commanded us to, so l'chaim. I'm Gil Chovav, and this is Kube. There are many things to say and write in favor of Kube, but there is no doubt that its best advantage is the fact that it gives Jerusalemites another reason to look down on Tel Avivians. Tel Aviv is a Kubeless city. Simple as that. No Kube restaurants in Tel Aviv. How do they live? In Jerusalem, on the other hand, these are the jewels in the crown. These magic dumplings, the dough made from bulgur, semolina, potatoes, or rice, and then stuffed with minced meat and herbs, are a grandma's table. They may be called kube, kubba, or kibbe. It's all the same to mama. Kube options are endless. You can go Iraqi and eat your kube in beetroot soup, round, purple, and sweet, or go Kurdish and have it in a yellow sauce, sour and flat, or be an Arab and fry it, or be a snob and eat it stuffed with siska, beef confit, or maybe go to the extreme and eat only kube hamo, 
a giant version of the dish that was actually invented in Machane Yehuda Market in Jerusalem. Anyway, whatever you choose to eat, the important part is to say, they don't have it in Tel Aviv. Of course they don't. How could they? Filling kubis so the dough does not tear requires craftsmanship that they can never achieve. It's all in grandma's wrist. And please don't tell anyone that we all cheat and fill our kube the easy way. We roll tiny meat patties, freeze them, and then cover with dough. This is a Jerusalemite secret. So there are a hundred of these foods. Which one touched you the most? Which one kind of made you actually stop and think, oh, wow, like I've never seen pacha quite like this before? <laughs> the entry that surprised me, um, in part because um, it was simply a story that I hadn't heard, was Marcus Samuelson's entry on locks. Um, Marcus Samuelson is a, was an Ethiopian refugee in Northern Europe, and he was um, adopted by white parents. He's a wonderful um, autobiography um, about the story. And he talked about how um, his grandparents had, years before he was adopted, had adopted a little girl from a concentration camp. And he explained that part of the reason he realized later that part of the reason why it wasn't weird for his parents to have adopted him was because the family had a history of bringing in refugees. And then he talked about how uh, the role that smoked fish and particularly lox played inside of this very modern family that in some senses had at its heart the refugee experience. That is a story that I don't think I ever expected to stumble on. Um, and I mean, maybe I should have, but when I did, I, I, I found that incredibly moving. Something that comes up, um, having worked with you on the book and read all these entries so many times and still being moved by them even even now when the book is out, the theme that comes up in a lot of these entries is this idea of being weird for what you brought to the lunchroom. Like Ruth Reichel writes about bringing rye bread sandwiches and that like the pungent smell being so embarrassing when all of her, you know, all the other girls had, all the other kids had like white bread sandwiches and, and actually how later in her life she comes to love rye bread after just thinking of it as this weird smelly thing. And um, Gabriel Stolman writes about mufleta, which is the Moroccan food the a Moroccan delicacy you eat um, in Mamuna, which is the Moroccan end of Passover celebration. And he basically talks about basically his mother would send him to school every day with a matzah sandwich for all of Passover, not just the beginning. And he, even his Jewish friends were like, that's crazy. And he talks about like the crunch, how hard it is to make a sandwich on matzah and then to be sitting in a cafeteria eating it. It just so clearly marks you as other. And it's so it's sort of interesting to me, even sort of what you were saying earlier, Mark, like whether or not you know it, these sort of experiences are ingrained in you and this idea of like being in a lunchroom and feeling weird about what it is that your particular parents brought, packed you in your lunch is so fascinating. I was weird because my parents packed me a lunch. Everyone else ate the school lunch? Absolutely. It was a poor school. I mean, kids came for government lunch. So if you brought a lunchbox, you were one of the, the middle class white kids. And, and I definitely remember that. I mean, I, I get it. I totally get it. Well, Alana, thank you thank for being you so here with much. us. Thank you. I'm hungry now. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. 
Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. We are here with the magical Gabriella Gershenson. She's a food writer and editor in New York City. She's been on staff at Savoir Magazine and Rachel Ray Every Day, and she has a fun food column in the Wall Street Journal. She's the recipe editor of the 100 Most Jewish Foods book, and she moderates a series of food talks at Temple Emanuel Stryker Center. Welcome, Gabby. So happy to be here. So you were the recipe editor for the 100 Most Jewish Foods book, but before that, you were the project editor on the web version, which is how you and I met. I was. It was it was my first big collaboration with Tablet. I was just remembering that I had written for Nextbook in like an earlier life. And then suddenly I'm doing this big project with Tablet. Alana and I met on a panel about cured foods in the Jewish tradition, which seems like a very Niche. apt entree so into specific. this world. <laughs> so specific. It's like smoked and salted. And I'm more of a sweet person myself. So I had a lot of anxiety going into that panel. I grew up with uh, grandparents who are immigrants from the old country. They did a lot of yeast dough baking. So I grew up loving the babka, which everyone loves now. But I'm not going to be like I was the OG babka lover because, you know, we all know that that's not really a thing. But I, I, I liked the dry, yeasty babka. You Do know. you accept non-chocolate babka as canonical babka? I prefer it. And yes. Wow. You are the underdog Chocolate person. babka is a new world thing. Oh my lord! I, I would I like the flavor of the cinnamon. I do. So wait, so that's like a thing that came to that we decided in America we were doing. Like we're cinnamon, the old school thing. I just decided that. <laughs> well, it sounded really definitive. Yeah, where I, would they have gotten like <laughs> Nutella and like you know Slovenia? Um, I really like poppy seeds in desserts. So like a yeast dough poppy seed hamantaschen is is probably my deathbed food also very timely right now we're in the cusp of porn. does it does it offend you when you go into the newfangled bakeries and be like uh hamantaschen with chava and jalapeno sauce like is, is this like it i, I i'm not um i'm not really like hardcore i don't make other people like what i like so <laughs> uh but i i really like how jewish food advances and i actually a couple years ago i wrote a piece in defense of the rainbow bagel, uh, because I think that as long as Jewish food is a living, breathing part of the culinary world, that that's a good thing. So yes, that. yes to the jalapeno. There are no traditions that you have seen in in the Jewish food world that you said, you know what? No, nope, the buck stops here. I'm not putting up with that. I, I I don't think it's very cute to wrap a matzo ball in bacon. Um, I don't think all Jewish food has to be kosher, but I don't like the sensationalism just for the sake right. of sensationalism. Like, it doesn't have to be kosher, but it shouldn't give a middle finger to right. people who keep kosher. Exactly. Yeah, I'm kind of with that's sort of exactly the way I feel, though I will say that and I'm not I'm not a, a, a food person in any way, shape or form. But I do have a kind of snobbery when I see rainbow challah. There's mm. something about like taking the challah and just making it a chance to sort of get your color palette right that I think you've moved away from. The food, well, we're in the, the world the of like Instagram food. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm with you. I mean, challah is a, a sacred bread. Yeah. 
So I think there's a difference between a rainbow bagel with like the funfetti cream cheese, which is gross, but interesting. <laughs> and then the rainbow challah, which maybe for some people crosses that sacred line. So what were some of the recipes that you struggled with? Like I think like that we think of as iconic, that everyone's going to be like, my grandmother's recipe is different than this. And that's why it's wrong. Well, we already know we're going to fail everyone in that regard. So we just need it to taste Hamish and to look exactly like what you're going to expect when you open the book. We have chicken soup on the cover with shredded chicken, and we have some nice carrot coins. We have some parsley. That's all going to be in the recipe. And it's taken for granted that it's going to taste good. I also have a whole crew of Bella Bustas, my crew. It's like Gwen Stefani and her whatever crew she takes around everywhere with her. I have a balabusta crew all... You have 83-year-olds, Jewish grandmothers. Who developed all who of cooked. these recipes. Wait, so who are... Are they relatives of yours? Um, my mother developed 10 recipes for the book because she happens to be an excellent, uh, talented food professional. Uh-huh. But uh, Rebecca Flintmarks, um, Mira F9, Olga Masov, Molly Yeh, Anna Gershenson... And we have recipes from Joe Nathan, from Uri Sheft is Balabos. Is there like a like a male version of Balabusta? Well, so, uh, those so, are the Avengers. So of it's Jewish an amazing. Food. It's an amazing word. I'm so glad you're using it. It's, it's master of the house, Baal Habes, right? Master of the house. That was an accident, but I'm so happy I impressed you. It, no, I mean it's it's one of my favorite words, and so. Uh, yeah, I love I mean, that it, Master of the House actually has come to mean a woman who like runs a serious kitchen. A hyper competent yeah. homemaker is a master of the house. So it's, it's not that hu- it's not that husband. Yeah. So I I mean it's actually a masculine word, Baalha base. So I yeah, use it for both, sure. Balabusta. So we had a crew of women who all are Jewish. It wasn't a prerequisite, but it did feel that there needed to be some kind of a meaningful history with the recipe developer and the food they were making so that they could capture the flavor of of these foods. So you also wrote a bunch of great entries for this book. You wrote poppy seeds, teglach, which is a great word, um, cottage cheese. Like, what's your all-time favorite classic Jewish food? I know I already shouted out to the poppy seed pastry, but it is a yeast dough pastry with poppy seed. It doesn't have to be hamantash, and it can be in the shape of a strudel. It can be like a Hungarian style in the shape of a horn, but I really do enjoy that poppy filling. How much has your family's history played into like your specific Jewish tastes? The Jewish food that's closest to my heart has everything to do with what my grandparents have made as I was growing up. And I'm a first generation American, so I really had like fresh off the boat food experiences. Um, I referenced my father's father. He made cottage cheese when I was growing up. Then he would make. He made cottage cheese. Oh, yeah. Hardcore yeah. with like yes. cheesecloth and and the way and my mom drank wow. the way, which I thought was really icky when I was a kid. But now people sell way in bottles. One one thing we all decided as a group when we were doing this project at Tablet was to call this the 100 most Jewish foods, not the 100 best Jewish foods, because I personally didn't want anyone pigeonholed into having to extol the virtues of each food. And I think it really resonated with a lot of the writers because it gave them room to be like, actually, I have a very tormented relationship right. with this food, but I have a lot of thoughts about it, like Cholent. Yes. Gabby, thank you so much for being here. How do we follow along with you? How do we RSVP for that event? How do we just see more of you? Um, well, um, Gabby Writes is my Instagram. That's probably where I'm most active. G-A-B-I-W-R-I-T-E-S. And Temple Emanuel Striker Center, if you just Google 
that. You can look at the events and the programs. They have amazing, amazing events. They have like every week, like Helen Mirren and Gloria Steinem. And I interviewed Phil Rosenthal a couple weeks ago. So it never disappoints. Thanks so much. That was Gabriella Gershenson, the recipes editor for our book, The 100 Most Jewish Foods. I'm Jeffrey Oskowitz, and this is Goose. If you asked Yidin from the old country about their most delectable, ultimately special meal, the answer would most certainly have included Goose. Goose was the aspirational Eastern European and Central European Jewish protein. Not chicken, not beef. In Romania, Jews made that now famous pastrami we associate with Jewish deli by curing goose meat, then rubbing it with spices, then smoking it. Roasted goose was the coveted main during German and Eastern European Hanukkah feasts, with potato latkes fried and the goose's fat served alongside it. The liver from the Hanukkah goose, aka foie gras, was usually stored for Passover. Goose was a central feature of Yiddish culture and its food traditions, and a classic Shalom Aleichem story from 1902 fittingly titled Geese. The female Jewish protagonist takes the reader through the process of purchasing young geese in October and fattening them up for winter for the meat, fat, and down feathers. The realities of 20th century America, however, forever altered Jewish eating. Beef was cheap. Chicken was even cheaper. In 1948, A&P brand supermarkets hosted the Chicken of Tomorrow contest to develop a new breed of chicken, pretty close to what we're eating today. Unlike yeast, the Chicken of Tomorrow could be held in captivity and fed nothing but corn and grain. Stalwart Jewish goose lovers attempted illegally raising geese in their tenement backyards in the Lower East Side. But eventually, the forceful powers of Americanization and sanitation won out. As industrial farming took root, goose went from being the choice meat of the Jewish community to a relic of the old world, something referenced by cranky old Jewish men lamenting the state of the world, an erstwhile Dickens novel or Shalom Aleichem story. But that shouldn't negate the importance of geese to Jewish gastronomic history. I'm Wayne Hoffman, and this is the Used Teabag. One of the most common features of the Jewish kitchen isn't found in a pantry or a cupboard or a refrigerator. It's a teabag, specifically a used teabag, air drying on the counter or creating a tiny puddle on a saucer. For my parents, who were otherwise coffee drinkers, a cup of tea was a nightly ritual when I was growing up. They didn't go for anything fancy or herbal or decaffeinated. It was Lipton all the way. They'd share a single tea bag between the two of them and then leave it on the counter for the next night. I didn't keep track of how long they'd make it last. It's entirely possible that they had only the one tea bag. I've heard similar stories from Jewish households for decades. Maybe it's a reflection of the ancient Talmudic principle of Baal Tashchit, preventing needless waste. Or perhaps it's a more generationally specific tendency among children of the Depression. Growing up poor in Jersey City, my mother and my aunt picked this up for my grandmother, who had lived through the Depression and would never have wasted something as precious as a tea bag. When I moved away to New York, I kept a small box of Lipton in my cupboard for my parents' annual weekend visits. 
Once, when my parents and my aunt were all at my apartment, I made them tea, being careful to use one tea bag to make all three cups. But when I tossed the used bag in the garbage afterward, they howled. It's still good, they shouted. You can use it again. I don't drink tea, I protested. To me, tea tastes exactly how you'd expect, like hot grass clippings. I only make it once a year for you, I said, and you're leaving tomorrow. They relented, grumbling, but I could almost hear them wondering if it would be so bad to keep the bag on the counter until the next year. And I'm Meryl Stubbs. And this is Brisket. Why are two shiksas writing about brisket for a collection about iconic Jewish foods? Because we are jealous. Jealous that we didn't grow up with brisket. Gloriously fatty, juicy, supple brisket. It's the perfect braising beef. Brisket is full of flavor with a thick layer of fat that naturally bastes the meat as it cooks, making it impossible to ruin. We wasps were raised on pot roast, a parched cut that seems to beckon inexperienced cooks to boil it dry. And roast beef, which leaves every cook's nerves frayed until the first slice reveals whether or not you succeeded in coaxing it to just the right pinkness. And you probably didn't. Wasps love their unforgiving meats, just as they relish stony silences at the table. Jews smartly embraced meats that like to actually be enjoyed. Brisket welcomes acids like vinegar and tomatoes, voraciously absorbs herbs and spices, and gets so tender you needn't own a sharp knife to slice it. And it's great for holidays and parties. You can cook it in advance, lay the slices in a serving dish soaking in the cooking juices, and reheat it to serve. It'll even be better this way. If you have leftovers, you'll have the makings of an epic steak sandwich. And now, Brett Warshaw explains the difference between pastrami and corned beef. Hi, I'm Brett Warshaw, and I run a newsletter called What's the Difference? Our latest issue delves into that vexing question, what's the difference between pastrami and corned beef? While you may have some vague understanding that pastrami and corned beef are two different things, and that one might be better than the other, you may be stuck on the how or why. Here are the major points of differentiation between the two, because no meat should ever be a mystery. Pastrami has two possible ancestries. It's either Romanian, where its predecessor, pastrama, was made with pork or mutton, or Turkish, where it'd be a descendant of pastirma made with beef. Corned beef hails from Ireland, which is why it's eaten on St. Patrick's Day. Today's corned beef and pastrami are both made from beef, albeit different parts of the animal. Corned beef is made from brisket, which comes from the lower chest of the cow. Pastrami is either made from a cut called the deckel, a lean, wide, firm shoulder cut, or the navel, a smaller and juicier section right below the ribs. These days, you may also see pastrami made with brisket. Pastrami and corned beef are brined before they're cooked. They're either rubbed with or submerged in a solution of salt and spices to infuse the meat with moisture and flavor. Both are brined in a mixture of salt, sugar, black pepper, cloves, coriander, bay leaves, juniper berries, and dill, as well as the preservatives sodium nitrate or sodium nitrate. After brining, pastrami gets coated in a mixture of black pepper, 
coriander, mustard seeds, fennel seeds, and sometimes fresh garlic. That spice coating is what gives it its blackened appearance. Corned beef is naked. No spice mix to speak of. Pastrami is smoked over hardwood, oftentimes with a pan of water nearby, which helps create steam and keep the meat moist. It's then cooled and then steamed before serving. Corned beef is just boiled, sometimes with cabbage and other accoutrements in the mix. If you like this, you can subscribe to What's the Difference at tinyletter.com slash what's the difference. Thanks for listening. Hey, J.Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash uomember and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Next, we talk to Beth Riccinati. She's a doctor and the author of Braided, A Journey of a Thousand Hollas, about the healing power of baking bread. Welcome, Beth. Thank you for being here. Thanks. I'm very excited. This book is so refreshing and amazing and just like surprising. I would actually love for us to get started by you reading a bit from it. Terrific. The act of making the bread, the mixing and the kneading, the watching and the waiting can heal your heartache and your emptiness, your sense of being overwhelmed. It did for me. You could bake bread once a week, every week. I did. You can make it alone or with other women, like I have done. The smell of fresh baking bread turned our house into a home. So go ahead, get down those ingredients, grab a bowl, and call me in the morning. I'd love to hear how you are doing. Amen. So you're a doctor, obviously, um, but this book is about challah. How did you come to hal- to baking challah, and then how did you connect that to your to your larger practice? About ten years ago, when I was practicing medicine and raising three small children and slowly losing my mind, a friend suggested at the Jewish New Year that I make challah, which was a laughable suggestion because I didn't bake anything. Okay, I baked brownies, you know, the kind in the box where you add the egg and I the can water. Do that. I'm really good at that. The good kind. Exactly. Ghirardelli, my favorite. Yep. Okay. St- yep. Still my favorite. Brownies How- in a box are the best brownies. <laughs> However, I took her up on her suggestion and I, I baked bread. And I baked challah, and it was the most amazing thing. Imagine, six ingredients on the counter, a bowl, and me. No pagers going off. I wasn't picking up Legos. 
I wasn't doing anything else but my hands in a bowl of dough. And at the risk of some hyperbole, I think it changed my life. I just stopped for 20 minutes and made bread. And then we had it that night. And it was the coolest thing, right? These two lopsided braids. And in case you were doubting your life decision, like at some point you start smelling that smell. Like, oh, that's right. That's absolutely right. It's the most incredible smell. And it turned our house into a home. It was really profound. So I did it again the next week. And then I did it again. And before I knew it, I was rearranging my life to make challah. Meaning to get home from work on Fridays by 3 p.m. instead of 7? <laughs> or I'd make it first thing in the morning. I was finding all these creative hacks to how to figure out how to make challah on Fridays. Correct. Because I have to say, I've actually done the same thing over the past eight or ten months. I, Sid, my wife, is a wonderful baker, but bread's not her thing. She knows how to make challah. But I said, well, if we're going to have challah every week, I guess I'm the challah baker. I don't bake anything. It's now the one thing I bake. And I probably get to it once or twice a month. But like those are times I get home from work two or three in the afternoon on Friday. And it is. It's so easy. Right. And that doesn't mean it's going to be the best challah in the world, but to make a competent challah and the smell is going to be great no matter what. So I'm totally with you there. I think that's right. And it it's it's there is a kind of simplicity to this particular bread. so but, but for me, it hasn't meant moving on to any other breads, which I think is fine. What about for you? You think it's like a gateway drug? Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> Not for me brioche. either. You're nope. snorting brioche. <laughs> it's challah, challah, just challah? It's all about challah. But did it, did yeah. it change anything in sort of, uh, I don't even know how to call it without sounding silly, like the spiritual makeup of your home? Did you find Absolutely. yourself reflecting more? Tell us about Absolutely. that. Absolutely. So, on a couple of different dimensions. One, just for me personally, to be grounded in time and space on Friday making bread is a really powerful thing. And it's a great way for me to get a weekly reminder that that there's a sort of a larger purpose and a larger meaning. And I really like that. And now we have Friday night dinner as a result every Friday, which is really beautiful. I didn't grow up um, that observant. And so it's been really fun to to bring that into our lives and to our kids' lives and their friends. I'm really grateful for that. How old are the kids now? Just about 19, 17, and 15 tomorrow. So loving Friday night dinners with <laughs> right. the family. Actually, it's really awesome because they do. And it's how's, very cool. How's I their think it's challah? the challah. Yeah. It is only the challah, yes. How's their challah baking practice? Actually, it's getting rather good. My, my middle one is starting to make challah pretty frequently this fall. It's quite fun. And our younger one is, she coined the term that's in the book, painting. The, so she used to stand with me on her chair when she was little um, and paint the hollow with the egg wash. Oh, I love that. Right? Mm-hmm. And splatter the Jackson Pollock-like. Yep. And so she also helps too. So nice. beyond the the smell and the bringing everyone together and the and the time to yourself, right? Like that's sort of, that's that nice escape. I imagine there's something about the kneading and the pushing that actually is physically good for us. Oh, absolutely. I need for my needs, as I write in the book, because it's an incredible way to handle stress and just get yourself focused in the moment. And you're right. It's a nice workout. I don't use a mixer. It's a bowl and the counter. What I love about making challah that I've learned since making it for, for so many years, I didn't start out this way appreciating, is that it connects us to our heritage. And when I'm making challah, I know that my friend here in New York, Meredith, is making challah. And I know that Allegra's making it in London and Miriam's making it in Tel Aviv. And we're all making challah on Fridays, all for the same reason, and have been doing so since the time of Sarah. I think it's incredible. Do you have any special tricks or tips for what, what's like Beth Riccanati's challah yeah, like, making yeah, what's, magic? <laughs> what's that special sauce? The special sauce. Wow. I do one rise. 
And I do that specifically because I want to keep it simple, because I think that to to maintain it's behavior modification, right, at the end of the day, and to keep it sustainable and so that I can do this week in and week out, I only do one rise and it keeps it short and sweet. And I know that I can do it the next week. If it's a long, complicated process and it's going to take me all day, I'm not going to do it again. I might do it once. But I think that we all need ways to manage stress in our lives and to to find ways to be present. And for me, it's making challah. And therefore, I keep it really simple. Can you explain what one rise means for someone who maybe has has only made challah once on this, Absolutely. For this podcast? Absolutely. So I mix all the dough together. That's all done. I put it in a bowl and I put it aside to rise. So that's when the yeast does its magic and it's going to double in size, which is fantastic. What you could do at that time, though, when when that's ready to braid, you could let it rise again. And then, i.e., you could braid it and put it to the side and let it rise for another hour or two or however long. And I don't do that. I let it rise for an hour and a half. I braid it and I bake it and I'm done. And it's perfect. So I get what I need, but I also move on. For people who are inspired by your book, as so many will be, to try it out, um, is there a recipe that you recommend? In the front of the book is the recipe that my friend gave me 10 years ago. It is still the recipe I use, and it's actually from here in New York City. It's from the JCC on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Our home away from home. I love that. Marlene Myers and JCC Hala recipe. Amazing. Absolutely. Beth Riccanati, thank you so much for being here. Reading your book, I made me realize that I actually do want to start baking challah even if i know they're going to be bad at first oh no there's no such thing as bad challah but but right trust me but like the idea that 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 there's more it's about more than just the product is such a moving idea and it's so obvious and i kind of love that the jewish calendar bakes it this so to speak (laughs) bakes in this time it's very smart so even sort of if you are not religious if you don't have a shabbat dinner you can still do this thing each week and i love that Beth Reconati, M.D., talking about her book, Braided, A Journey of a Thousand Chalas. I'm Gail Simmons, and this is Pickles. I'd like to say I've never met a pickle I didn't like, but that would be slightly untrue. As far as I'm concerned, sweet pickles don't count in the category. I'll gladly accept any other salty, well-brined, and preserved vegetable, though. In fact, as far back as I can remember, full sour dill pickles have been the single most important food in my life. There's no other flavor as satisfying, nor that defines my family and my Jewish heritage as perfectly as a pickle. Allow me to explain. My mother was a fabulous cook. Growing up in Toronto, I was spoiled by the freshly made meals she prepared every day. My father, on the other hand, could barely boil water. But somehow, he managed to become our family pickle maker. Each year, in late summer, when Kirby cucumbers came into season, my father would drag home a giant bushel from the market. And for two days, my mother's kitchen would become his pickling lab. I can't imagine our fridge or cellar without a jar or twelve of his full-sour, dillweed-infused, lip-smacking, face-puckering pickles. We ate them all year round, after school or as a midnight snack, with burgers or roast turkey piled onto platters and served every Friday night for Shabbat, but also on Rosh Hashanah, Passover, and Hanukkah alike. No holiday table was complete without them. In my early 20s, I moved to New York for culinary school. 
One afternoon, tired and homesick, I went to the Lower East Side looking for a pickle to curb my craving. After tasting a few from the area's last remaining pickle sellers, I landed on one that did the trick. It wasn't quite as sour as my father's. Its crunchy exterior didn't give way to a softer, intensely fermented center exactly as I had hoped, but it came close. And so, for the next 10 years, I loyally schlepped Jared's home to my Chelsea apartment whenever time allowed. When I got married in 2008 to a fellow pickle enthusiast, it seemed only fitting that my father made a hundred jars of pickles to give to our guests as a memento. But the logistics of importing so many pickles across the border from Canada in their precious liquid proved futile. So I pleaded with my pickle dealer to sell me jars of his pickles to custom label for the occasion. He reluctantly agreed and the wedding went off without a hitch. A few years later, we had a daughter. As I watched my friends struggle with picky eaters and infinite demands for candy and sweets, a slow and steady fear took hold. What if my child didn't like pickles? Thankfully, our predisposed taste buds were passed down to yet another generation. And at five years old, pickles are among her favorite foods. We eat them together when I get home from work, on every Jewish holiday, and whenever we see them on a restaurant menu. She demands them in her lunch and once in a while for breakfast too. I couldn't be more proud. She equates them with her grandfather and in time, I hope she'll come to think of them as I do, a vital link to our past and to the generations of Jewish pickle eaters who came before us. I'm Mark Tracy, and this is Hebrew National Hot Dogs. My adherence to kashrut growing up was like that saying about whether you should button the buttons on a three-button suit. Sometimes, always, never. Sometimes, milk with meat. Always. Shellfish. I mean, I lived in Maryland. Never. Pork. I still never eat pork, and with regards to bacon, I am confident I am missing out big time. But I take pride in my allegiance to kosher hot dogs. They're better anyway. Or so I've been told, I wouldn't know. Great hot dogs, to me, are delicious, juicy, without the dangerous smokiness I can only imagine the ones stuffed with pork have. My dad would get Second Avenue Deli dogs shipped, frozen, in bulk. When my parents and brother were away on Saturday afternoons for soccer games, I would stay at home with the George Foreman grill, squeezing the top down to etch those charred divots into the dogs, lightly splaying the buns on the grill near the end. Deli mustard, a Coke. I can't believe people eat them with ketchup. My father told me about the Hebrew national ads. We answer to a higher authority. A more concise statement of American Jewish assimilation I have not found. Our hot dogs are better than your hot dogs because they must satisfy the demands not only of your profane laws of man, but our own sacred laws of God. Jewishness. It works. Infant circumcision could take a page from this marketing strategy. But, of course, the implied boast was unprovable because those making it would never eat the other hot dogs. The slogan combined confidence in the reasoned superiority of one's faith with an orthodox commitment to that faith regardless of reason. Many a group has refused to copy the American mainstream, but it takes something still known by its Yiddish name, chutzpah, to insist, no, actually, you will copy us.
I'm Roya Hakakian, and this is Persian Rice. For all the love lavished upon lumpy Ashkenazi darlings, such as the bagel, kugel, or matzah ball, it is indeed the Persian rice that, if it came down to it, for it always does, could serve as the Jewish people's most fitting alimentary metaphor. Lean, distinct grains, negligible on their own, become gastronomically substantial when together on a spoon or in a mound on the tray. Come what may, be it herb, dill, leek, parsley, or spice, cumin, cinnamon, cardamom, or bean, fava, green, or the black-eyed variety, while the palatable repast might lead the epicure to believe that mere lightness accounts for the taste, the crusty bottom-of-the-pot concoction offers a tough rebuttal, leaving room for many interpretations, for instance this. Only with so hardened a bottom does such lightness on top become possible. And can one make this dish from a mere recipe? Queen Esther would advise against it if she could. It takes serious dedication to learning by the side of a culinary chacham to create the crusty, fluffy paradox without involving the local fire chief, not so metaphorically speaking. crew if you like what you're hearing you should buy this book you can find it at tapamag.com slash 100 jewish foods now back to the show we are here with nama sheffi and amanda dell they are with the jewish food society a nonprofit that works to preserve celebrate and revitalize jewish culinary history and which if we may editorialize is amazing and should be loved and supported by all of our listeners so to start will you both introduce yourselves tell us what your role is at the jewish food society and what it is Sure. Hi, everyone. My name is Nama Sheffi. I'm the founder and executive director of the Jewish Food Society. And I think about the society is as the new home for Jewish food. I think that Jewish food deserves a home, and we hope to be that place. I'm Amanda Dell, and I'm the program director for Jewish Food Society. So I have the amazing opportunity to bring our digital recipe archive to life. So through our programming, we really get to bring the stories and recipes off the page and into an actual experience that people can have for themselves to see and taste and listen. Where are these recipes coming from? All over the world. Archived (laughs) generations of bubbies throughout time. Essentially, yes. Um, We have a website which we recall our digital recipe archive. So basically on the archive, we're preserving family recipes that we have collected by cooking with people and then recipe testing and then presenting it on our archive. Do you have a favorite from from that archive? Like one (laughs) that you could say like, oh my God, that is 
perfection. I'll turn it to Nama for the favorite, I think. Wow, that's hard. (laughs) Um, Okay, so I really love the Mexican Jewish recipes that we have. Um, We have a lamb, a stuffed lamb shoulder dish from a chef that grew up in Mexico City. And this dish is really brings together his grandma's heritage from Alapo and um, her... Um, new home in Mexico City. So it's flavored with tamarind and olives and jalapenos. And it's it's so unique. That sounds amazing. And so so someone reach out to you and say like, you know, here's where my family's from. I have this amazing Persian rice dish that I was was made every Friday night. Like, how do you how do people find you guys? And how do you find the recipes? So I think it's two ways. So we are constantly actively searching for interesting stories and recipes. And by the way, we 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 care equally about the deliciousness of the recipe and about the interesting story behind it. So that's like the two main criteria. So um, we have an amazing team of people, collaborators that you know, going after those stories and they can come from celebrity chefs or from grandmas or from anyone really with talent in the kitchen and good story to tell. So that's one way. And the other way is really um, people submitting through the website. So we have a submit a recipe form and we get all sorts of weird and delicious and great stories. Our signature event that we do is called Schmaltzy. It's a storytelling and tasting event. So it's a little bit modeled after the storytelling style of the moth. People tell a really personal story that in some way... Involves schmaltz. Um, the schmaltz is on the popcorn when people first come in. We've never had a story specifically about schmaltz. But last in the this fall, we featured the scholar and, and cookbook author, uh, Dara Goldstein. Um, and she wanted to tell a story about Pacha. So for me... It was really interesting because I had I actually am Russian and Polish. I had never heard of Pacha. Um, once I finally understood what it was, and, um, I think the best way to describe it for people that would maybe want to eventually try it is like a meat gel. It's, it's jelly cartoff, isn't it? Yes. It's like a jello, but it's meat. Yeah. Ooh. So I think that texture is a little bit difficult for people sometimes. Um, it's nothing like <laughs> it. It's the best thing in the world. Okay. So it's kind of like, I also think it could become, it could get trendy because it's like a bone broth, but it's just frozen mm-hmm. um, or <laughs> g- more gelled. So, you know, when we got to serve that at Schmaltzy, we really tried to present it, you know, in a beautiful way um, with some parsley and a hard boiled egg and some horseradish and some vodka on the side so that people would be enticed to try it. And the deal would be sufficiently drunk to not <laughs> yeah, notice what they're so putting I, in their mouths. Yeah, I think it just, you know, it speaks to what we're trying to do, which is, you know, trying to showcase, you know, traditional foods and recipes that maybe people don't necessarily know that are not you know, a part of their everyday understanding of what Jewish food is, but are, can still be really delicious and have a story behind it. And the fun thing, so I was at that Schmaltzy event. And yeah. so everyone, there's like a bunch of storytellers, and then you go and then you eat the foods. So basically, there was a story, um, Lior Lev Serkaz, who's in the book writing about kosher salt, he had a story about pakaila. And then after you went over to his like station and ate his pakaila and I was. It was amazing. It's this like what? It's like a Tunisian beans. By the way, literally when I cooked for dinner. Spinach. Yeah. Literally what I cooked for dinner last night. Wow. For real? Yep. Wow. I bring the jars of the spinach confit from so, Israel. So why oh. is food? I mean, I love the idea of it's a storytelling event with food, and then you get to eat the food, um, which is such a perfect concept. But why is food such a good vehicle for storytelling? Do you think? 
I mean, I think it's so such an immediate medium, so sensual, so um, like I think everyone's like even in this room, like if we think about what's you know our memories from childhood, I bet like all of them will be connected to food, right? Like it's such a vivid um, sense. And I think like working for many years at the Israeli consulate, promoting Israeli culture, It was, it was challenging in many ways, you know, to communicate um, music programming and dance and all sorts of, of cultural project. But food was, you know, such an, an easy and effective medium to get people curious and interested. I'm also curious. So you guys have a tote bag that I have. I love it. It's a list of foods and it's like in this very cool font and it says schmaltz, laka, sabish, Sabish? Sabish. <laughs> well, that's my that's part of my question. Pakala, shakshuka, and herring. And so I'm, I'm wondering, like, we, you know, we and get accused. Shala. Shala. Um, Shala. We get accused a lot of being Ashkenormative. And so I'm wondering, like, when you make a tote bag that has a list of foods, do you, is it important that, like, okay, this one's from here, this one's from here, this one's Sabish. Like, how do you choose what you're representing? And how much, is that, how much does that play into your thinking about everything you do with this organization? A lot. <laughs> so our mission is to communicate a way more diverse and delicious representation of Jewish food. So it means that it's from all over and it's global and Jews lived literally all over the place. So, yeah. So, you know, Sabich definitely should be there. And I think that the story of Sabich in particular is so interesting and so Jewish. So it's in Iraqi Jewish Shabbat breakfast. Basically, so it's a spread of um, pita and tahini and fried eggplants and parsley and um, amba, which is an unripe mango um, condiment. If people want to find out more about your organization or contribute uh, recipes to the archive, how can they get in touch? How can they find you? Uh, JewishFoodSociety.org. And follow them on Instagram because the best thing is like the photography is beautiful and lush and it's these like old, old, old recipes put on just like beautiful food photography. Thank you so much. Thank you guys. That was Nama Sheffi and Amanda Dell of the Jewish Food Society. I'm Leah Koenig, and this is Yemenite Breads. As a community with limited resources, Yemenite Jews mastered the art of transforming the simple ingredients of fat, flour, and water into a repertoire of glorious baked goods. This resourcefulness, a mark of great Jewish home cooks across cultures, has resulted in tempting everyday breads, like flaky fried malawach, as well as a host of decadent Sabbath breads. There's kubana, a pull-apart centerpiece that's as rich as brioche, with a deep brown exterior. And jachnun, a crepe-like pastry made from dough that gets stretched ultra-thin, smeared with clarified butter, then folded and rolled endlessly onto itself. Both are baked overnight at very low temperatures and emerge from the oven downy and caramelized. They're traditionally served after synagogue on Saturday mornings, paired with hard-boiled eggs, a fenugreek condiment called hilbe grated tomatoes, and schug, the Yemenite cilantro chili hot sauce. The dips certainly brighten things up, 
but a carb-induced Shabbat nap is all but guaranteed to follow, another mark of a Jewish cooking success. I'm Leah Leibowitz, and this is Burnt Offerings. Aaron Franklin of Austin, Texas, probably the world's greatest barbecue pit master, smoked his very first kosher brisket in 2017. He wasn't having a religious awakening. He was honoring Ari White and Izzy Edelman, two Jews who have respectively captured the coveted Brisket King NYC title, the king of quote-unquote kosher bacon, in 2016 and 2017. The sinewy cut, of course, has long been a staple of both Jewish cooking and American barbecue, but the latter's love affair with pork, pulled ribs or otherwise, meant that Jews were largely absent from the barbecue pit. Not anymore, and amen to that. If you're looking for the world's first recipe for grilled meat, after all, look no further than Leviticus, which instructs the Israelites how to build a pit and roast the burnt offering. With a bond between beef and holiness secured early on, and with Kashrut paying close attention to slaughtering cattle in a specific way, sanctifying the moment of their sacrifice, it was only a matter of time before Jews returned to the fore of the meat scene. I'm Shalom Auslander, and this is Cholent. People talk to me about Cholent. I don't know why, but they do. At parties, at book festivals, at coffee shops. They really shouldn't. You should come over, they say. I'll make Cholent. It's like running into Oliver Twist 40 years after he left the workhouse and inviting him over for a nice bowl of gruel. I hate Cholent. I hate the sound of the word. I hate even saying it and I'm going to have to shower as soon as I'm done recording this. It reminds me of everything I hate about my history. It's a steaming hot bowl of childhood, and just for the record, I'm severely chillant and tolerant. Come on, Oliver, gruel. You remember gruel. Assholes. It's not chillant's fault. What's to hate, after all? A stew made of beans, meat, potatoes, and bones? It's delicious. But the whole is more grating than the sum of its parts. Ostensibly, it was a way around the prohibition of cooking on Shabbos. The only thing rabbis love more than cholent is a good loophole. But my mother wasn't able to bring the bowl out to the table without reminding us that Jews were poor and miserable. They were peasants. And so the poor and miserable Jews had nothing to eat but this poor and miserable peasant stew, no doubt while fleeing somewhere to somewhere else from which they would soon flee again. The smell alone is enough to make me depressed. My mother made it with chickpeas, they tell me. Really? Mine made it with guilt and bile. I prefer the jelly donuts on Hanukkah. They're white and bright and sweet and sugary. In hindsight, I'm surprised I wasn't taught that the jelly represents the blood of my poor and miserable ancestors, the powdered sugar, their tears. When I die and no doubt go to hell, you will too, trust me, we all do. God will meet me at the gates with a steaming bowl of that loathsome two-juice stew in his hands an evil grin on his old bastard face. Come on, Shalom, Chulland. You remember Chulland? Asshole.
All right. Our next guest is someone who is very close to my heart, literally, because I have her company's T-shirt. Uh, it's Sonia Marie Lycum of Lycum Brewing. As their slogan puts it, you can't help but like them. That's L-E-I-K-A-M. She is an unorthodox super fan. You'll see her all over our Facebook page. She brought us beer in Seattle. And she brought me a T-shirt that proudly announces on the back that Lycum Brewing puts the brew in Hebrew. Here we are with Sonia Marie Lycum. My name is Sonia Marie Lycum, and I am one of the owners of Lycum Brewing, a kosher craft brewery in Southeast Portland, Oregon. I began brewing beer six years ago because I fell in love with a man who was a home brewer and decided to leave his job as a CPA and become a professional brewer. And I figured I better know how to make the product that I'm going to sell. And my husband, Theo, began brewing about 12 years ago. We wanted it to reflect our family and our family identity and values. So we decided to become a kosher brewery because being Jewish is a huge part of our family identity. Although we don't keep kosher and my husband is not Jewish, being identified as members of the Jewish community is really important because for years I have worked strengthening the Jewish community here in Portland. And when I decided to leave my job in order to help support the beginnings of our brewery, I wanted to make sure that our identity as Jews was evident in what we were doing. Traditionally made beer is absolutely kosher in its ingredients and how it's made. What you may not know is that some beer is clarified with gelatin or fish bladders. We clarify our beer with algae. Also, we only use 100% pure fruit, no extracts, and everything that we use has a hexure and comes with kosher certification from the grain all the way to the yeast. And that's really important to us, not just from an identifier of being Jewish, but also from an ethical point of view. We want to make sure that our ingredients are all sourced in an ethical way. And having a hexure helps us feel like we're tracking our ingredients better. One of our main principle ideas for Lycum Brewing was to be as inclusive as possible to as many people as possible. So one of the things you may not know about our beer is that we are what is called gluten reduced. We use an enzyme during the fermentation process, which isolates the gluten protein and kind of chops it up into little bits. And then we filter that out. So when you test our beer, we actually have less than 10 parts per million of gluten, which is below the FDA's tolerance for gluten-free food. But we technically can't call it gluten-free because of those wonderful federal regulations. So that's another way that we really try to be as inclusive as possible in our beer. So to find out more about us, you can follow us on all the social media, Instagram, Facebook, or go to likeambrewing.com. That's L-E-I-K-A-M brewing.com. We are a small artisanal brewery and currently don't distribute outside of Oregon. But if you're interested in getting a hold of our beer, send us an email and we'll connect you with our distributor and we'll see what we can do. That was Sonia Marie Lycum. And I have to say, we tried her beer at our show in Seattle, and it and, was amazing. And we like them. We liked them. We liked them. About a month ago, the team got a frantic email from Mark asking if someone could get to Pittsburgh the following day. There was an important pie delivery coming all the way from Minnesota, and he wanted one of us there to cover the event. None of us could make it, but we found a local reporter, Sabrina Bowden, who was able to help us out. 
After hearing the tape that Sabrina recorded, Sophia and Josh decided that rather than tell the story of that night, there was a different, deeper story they wanted to share. I'll let Josh explain. On February 8th, 2019, Rose McGee and Wendy Goldberg, both from the Minneapolis area, arrived at the Road of Shalom Synagogue in Pittsburgh, along with a shipment of pies. Sweet potato pies, to be exact. For Rose, the sweet potato pie is about comfort, so much so that she runs a charitable organization aptly called Sweet Potato Comfort Pies. Wendy, her longtime friend, is a Jewish educator and an advocate for social justice. The delivery in Pittsburgh and their experience creating it is the perfect lesson on how food, not just within groups, but between groups, can really be the bond that can tie us all together. I'll let them tell you the rest of their story. Rose speaks first. I grew up with the sweet potato pie always being at every major event, whatever that was. And see, in the South, just as every culture has its tradition, Sundays were very important, so you'd be in church all day long. And since you're in church all day long, that means you're going to bring food, right? So there'd be these times when people would bring these boxes of food because they're going to be there all day. And then they spread them out. And people could share and eat. And people would want to eat so-and-so's this. And I want aunt so-and-so's that. And cousin so-and-so's this. So the sweet potato pie would be one of those very, very <laughs> persickety kinds of things of whether or not people wanted. And my grandmother's was one, her sweet potato pie, people, her name was Rosie. I was named after her. People would, I want one Aunt Rosie's pie. I want Aunt Rosie's sweet potato pie. When I left my grandmother's house in I went off to college and then I ended up moving to Colorado and then I got married. One day, for some reason, I decided I wanted to make sweet potato pie. Well, I never had to make them because I had my grandmother and everybody else to make them. And here I am now, ooh, I have a taste for sweet potato pie, but I don't know how to make it. So I called my grandmother and I botched it up badly. <laughs> it was horrible. And I tried it again and eventually I did get it kind of decent. And over time, it became uh, one of those things. People would say, can you bring the sweet potato pie? So that was always a good sign. You know, to tell you the truth, I am not a cook. But when Ferguson was happening, I was sitting there watching television, and I saw the faces of hopelessness. And I wanted to do something, but I wasn't sure what that something was. And something said, go make some pies and take them down. So I did. I made about 30 sweet potato pies, loaded them up in my trunk, and drove down. And I was able to connect with a pastor in that area. But what I discovered when I got there, first it was surprise and shock. You're bringing a sweet potato pie from Minnesota. After all, you know, sweet potato pie is a southern dish traditionally. But after they saw the pie, it was beautifully packaged and they could smell, you know, the, the loveliness of it coming. The first person we gave one to there at the Michael Brown Memorial site there in the street began to cry. She couldn't believe that someone was actually bringing this kind of gesture. And from that point on, I felt I needed to do something with this in Minnesota. 
I came back home and contacted my mayor and some community folks, and we met right there in my living room to determine how can we take what just happened there, the emotional impact that this made on me. And I really felt that for communities such as ours, which tends to be white, but in denial that there are any racial issues, which there are, needed some way to bridge relationship gaps. So what we did was start planning the next Martin Luther King event. So that weekend, that Saturday, volunteers came in and made the number of pies that Dr. King's age would have been. And then the next day, people came and had this tough conversation around race, but they also had a conversation around who they would gift those pies to in the community. That within itself was relationship building, because not only are you now having this conversation with people in a circle, but you're carrying something to someone. And now someone is receiving this, and that's how it started. One of the next things that we responded to was Charleston, South Carolina, in Mother Emanuel AME Church after the killings there. We responded to Standing Rock. So here we are now in Pittsburgh. Here's Wendy. According to Rose, we met when we were at a synagogue in Minnesota that was doing a service for... The focus was on housing because the Jewish community has a lot on social justice and you were focusing on fair housing and all of that. And I was fighting for my home. Jewish Community Action, which is a social action branch of the Jewish community in Minnesota, was going out and door knocking on homes where people had letters from the bank saying that they would be foreclosed upon, but they were largely homes where people may not read that mail, may not speak English or read English, or just may not have known what all this legal jingo was. And so we started doing these door knockings. Rose was speaking about it. And then we door knocked for Rose to make sure that she stayed in her home, which she was a huge leader and catalyst for doing, what do we call it, nonviolent action, I guess. And whenever there was a hearing about Rose's house, all the people who could come down to the Hennepin County Courthouse in the middle of the day with expensive parking would show up to just be there with her. And she spoke for herself. She did all the speaking. We just showed up as warm bodies who said, we believe in this woman and we believe in her story. I just got into the habit of following her around. And we started doing evening walkarounds in North Minneapolis where the Jewish community had roots and had fled as the Jewish community. It was the immigrant community. Um, the Jews in Minnesota were in a ghetto, so to speak, because there was redlining in most of the deeds in the Minneapolis area that the deeds read persons of African or Semitic heritage may not own this house. It's just not known as much about the Jewish community, but my father grew up in what we now call the Jewish ghetto. It was just 12 square blocks where all the Jews lived. But as those people earned more money and moved out to bigger homes outside of North Minneapolis, some feel it was very strictly white flight. They saw the first African-American person living on the block and they've started leaving. I don't know that that's true. In my father's case, he said, oh, we went to school with African-Americans, with white Jews. Well, they never called us white in those days, but the Jews and they don't, I don't think that they would say that they left because the neighborhood was turning in that way. But we have this shared neighborhood. When the Jews left North Minneapolis, African-Americans moved in. So we were really going into the place where our people had left and knocking on doors to help people stay in their homes there. 
And once I met Rose, I just felt like I would follow her anywhere. Rose called me and said, I want to go to Pittsburgh. I want to go to the Jewish community. And what is it going to take? And I said, well, we have to do a kosher kitchen. We have to bake in a kosher kitchen. And she said, can you find me one? And I right now am the assistant director of Jewish life at a Jewish elementary school called Heilicher. I said, we have a kosher kitchen and we have kids who can bake and we can set up a whole baking day so we could be your workforce and your kosher kitchen and you can be our head chef. And so we set up a day where um, parents boiled sweet potatoes all day. And then on the second day, we had children in the kitchen with Rose in the middle of a huge snowstorm. We made 63, but our goal was to have 50 sent here, which is what we did. We shipped 50 for here. Two were taken for an African-American elders group to have this dialogue around racism. I realized, you know, how interesting that would be to pull two pies from, from this batch for African-Americans who are having a conversation around race, pies that have been made by Jewish children to go to Pittsburgh. There's so many layers. Why not the sweet potato pie? Because the sweet potato pie is so complex. It's not a dessert that anyone can just go in the kitchen and whip up just like that. It's, it's a little more complicated than that. What we're seeing and what we're learning is many of the Jewish people in this country and around the world are people of color. To separate them is not something that I want to support anymore. Yes, there are cultural things about the Jewish community and there are cultural things in Black culture but to say the Jewish community and the black community as if they are two separate and not interspersed and interwoven communities is not really something that I want to support anymore or accept in that way. It's a piece of what keeps our Jewish people of color from coming into mainstream Judaism. How do we not acknowledge that we are or and they are we and we are they? Mm -hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? And, and it really is us, whether it's our skin color or not. We don't have to wait next time for the Jewish community to be impacted. Rose showed up not as a Jew to say we need to go to Pittsburgh. And then now it's next our turn when it's not someone who looks Jewish or who is Jewish for us to show up for them. I just think that we've opened more doors and there's more of a ripple effect than just that we did a nice thing for Pittsburgh. Bishop Desmond Tutu helped us learn a word, Ubuntu, which means I am because we are. We are all in this together, very much so, very much so. Jewish food. Tell us your food-related memories, brag about your favorite deli, and share your great-grandma's kugel or kubeh recipe. Email us with all your food stories at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or leave us a voicemail at 914-570-4869. is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. A special thank you to the 100 Most Jewish Foods contributors who read their entries on this week's episode. Shalom Oslander, Roya Hakakian, Amanda Hesser, and Meryl Stubbs, Wayne Hoffman, Gil Havav, Joe Kargman, Leah Koenig, Leah Leibowitz, 
Gail Simmons, Mark Tracy, and Jeff Yaskowitz. You can buy The 100 Most Jewish Foods, a highly debatable list, at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or your local bookseller. The music you've heard this week is by the Klezmer group Farnacht. You can find out more about them at bit.ly slash klezmerduo. Follow us on Instagram at unorthodoxpodcast and on Twitter at unorthodox underscore pod. While you're at it, join our Facebook group. This episode was produced by me, Stephanie Butnick, along with Josh Cross. Our associate producers are Sarah Fredman-Ader and Noah Levinson. Our editor is Sophia Steiner-Eloy. The interview with Rose McGee and Wendy Goldberg was recorded in Pittsburgh by Sabrina Bowden. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our social media intern is Elazar Abrams. Our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Rabbinic supervision this week by the Lock Slicers at Russ and Daughters. We come to you from Argo Studios, which only eats chocolate babka. Shalom, friends. Shalom, friends.